we find ourselves in the book of Judges. If you haven't turned there, um, do so. Um, last couple lessons, we, we looked at Ehud and the left-handed uh, judge and how he and his troops um, conquered the Moabites and um, slew 10,000 of their armed uh, forces. Uh, then we looked last week again at uh, Shamgar, or Shamgar, um, sometimes referred to as the surprise judge. It doesn't say that he raised an army. Um, he was a surprise judge because we believe he was a convert, and uh, even though he killed uh, 600 uh, Philistines with his ox goad, uh, he probably did it surprisingly um, because people weren't expecting somebody with his background to defending God's cause. Uh, he's mentioned twice in the scripture, and uh, once we looked at last week, and he'll be mentioned again in chapter 5 uh, during Deborah's song. Um, so we remember him because uh, of the great uh, things he did, basically because he obeys God's command and fulfilled um, uh, the calling that he was giving, given. So we're about to look at our fourth of, of the 12 judges in the book. And uh, if I were to, to come up with a summary sentence that would kind of cover the entire book, uh, I think I would choose the sentence that says, when leaders lead, others will follow. I think we see that repeated continuously throughout the, the book of Judges. When leaders lead, others will follow. God appointed judges and prophets to speak to the people on his behalf. And when the judge was a godly influence, he would lead the people into repentance, and he would lead the people into victory over God's enemies. Even though the Lord would sometimes use their enemies as a means of judgment upon his rebellious people, he also would raise up judges to guide them to be courageous warriors in the fight against evil and on behalf of God. So Judges chapter 4 reveals how 80 years after Ehud's uh, died, that the children of Israel began to follow after false gods once again. And we know that it's a roller coaster ride. Um, how often do they fall into the sin of idolatry? And how often did God show his mercy and his love and his compassion in forgiving them and bringing them back uh, to himself? We know that the time of the judges uh, was a dark time in Israel's history. Uh, the Israelites had quickly abandoned the responsibility to teach their children about God in their day-to-day -day life. And thus God becomes marginalized because the people got caught up enjoying the blessings of the land that God had won for them. So they kept thinking, you know, I did this. 
we kept forgetting to, to uh, thank God for the blessings of the land. So Israel had become preoccupied with her own well-being, kind of like our society today. And so this helps to explain why the Israelites so quickly turned away from God time and time again. And yet God would bring judges to the forefront of their society to help bail them out. Put them back on the straight and narrow, you might say. <clears throat> the lesson that I think was trying to be taught here is that you can't be consumed with yourself. You can't be consumed with the things of this world, this culture, this society, and be true to the Word of God. And unfortunately, one of the casualties of this inward focus, this self-idolization, was the lack of godly men in the culture and society. And again, you can make application to our culture. Um, having a hard time defining what a man is anymore, or a woman. And so we see the same thing happening here. Uh, a lack of godly men appearing on our scene. Uh, talking with Micah yesterday, he said one of the burdens he has is the idea to raise up godly young men within the church. And that was a, uh, a positive thing to me. That he, that's one of the things he feels led to do. Someone once said, a man who is serving himself is no man at all. He may be a tyrant, he may be a survivor, he may be a hard worker, but he's not the man that God has called him to be. And again, one of the indications of this is that their children did not know about God and what God had done for them in the past. The men of that day failed to teach the children. Men became focused on what they decided was right for themselves. And fathers did not pass the truth of God to their children. They did not do what God had commanded them to do with their family. And again, we can see that happening repeated again in our day. Instead, these men became uh, individuals who lacked principle. And they were people who lacked true courage. They became pragmatic in their life and the way they lived. And this was not the first time that Israel would rebel against God after their godly leader died. And unfortunately, it would not be the last time either. So thankfully, God reserved some for himself. He, there was a remnant there who would do, who, who did not do what was right in their own eyes. And in chapter 4 of Judges, we meet the next judge, Deborah. So long, follow along in uh, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. 
And you have to go through that. You have to go through all the folders again. Start with a church chart. Verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who resigned, who resided in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Parasus, Hagalim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Each enemy is significant here. Remember, we were looking at the enemies of Israel last week, or last couple of weeks, and uh, we talked about Babylon being an example of, of the end destruction that they would be taken into captivity in Babylon and Assyria. And we talked about Amalek and Moab and how they had uh, played a part in, in uh, the history of, of Israel. And now we see the Canaanites. Here the Lord delivers Israel. Um, the terminology, the, the phrase is like meaning selling them or in, back into slavery. The language of enslavement. Uh, back into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that that would happen. After all, Jacob came into the promised land and defeated the Canaanites. And now the Canaanites are regrouped and they're ruling over the Israelites. The Canaanites who had been defeated once now rule Israel. Those who were under the curse of slaves, uh, of slaves, are now in charge. They are the ones that are ruling. There seems to be some dispute among some of the Bible um, scholars as to the um, term of uh, Jabin. Some Bible scholars believe that Jabin is uh, a title for the ruler of the Canaanites, that uh, it's similar to the president or the king, given the title of ruler. Others believe that perhaps this particular ruler named Jabin uh, was a descendant or part of the family of Jabin that was uh, killed by Joshua. Joshua's defeat of, of his Jabin and, and the Canaanites was the climax of the conquest of Canaan. And thus Jabin's city of Hazor had been totally devoted to the Lord, just as the first city of Jericho that had been conquered. So you have Hazor up here to the north, you have Jericho further down here to the south, and they are connected between something that we talked about earlier in one of the other lessons, that Hormoth, 
where the cities were totally devoted to God uh, and destruction. They, they were set up with sacrificial fires and destroyed them. Remember that they were instructed to take all the uh, loot and, and booty and, and stuff and put it in the center of the town and they were to destroy the town. Nothing was to be taken for or divided up. This was to the glory of God. So it's kind of like bookends. You have the city to the north and the city to the south um, that were devoted to the glory of God. So Jabin, ruling from Hazor, was the head of the city-states of Canaan. And if you recall anything from uh, ancient history, the city-states were kind of like the Greeks and the Romans. They had empires, but they had city-states that ruled kind of like small nations within nations. So again, we see here the theme of the crushing of the head the political head. We see Joshua uh, crushing the head of uh, Jabin. Uh, and now here we see another Jabin uh, rises up to control uh, the Israelites. And if you know the story, you know that there will be a literal crushing of the head later on in the story when it comes to the, uh, the leader of the army, Sisera. So finally, we know from this first conquest that the iron chariots had not uh, stopped Joshua. Now remember back in chapter 1, verse 19, um, there was this fear of the iron chariots, and therefore they didn't conquer the land. But Joshua had no problems with them. And now we see the iron chariots about to rise up again uh, with this battle that uh, is brewing. And we see that um, it says here, So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them. Uh, that would be a clue of what, how God is going to deliver um, the Israelites in this next battle. Uh, there is a water connected to this victory and there will be water connected to the upcoming victory too. <laughs> Verse 4. Now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to set or dwell under the palm tree of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. The name Deborah means bee, like the insect, B-E-E. -E. And one commentator remarked that she had honey for her friends and a stinger for her enemies. And this is kind of proven out in Scripture. If you look into Psalms and Proverbs, we see the uh, use of honey being associated with uh, 
the sweet taste of the word, the wisdom of the word, holy word. And in 1 Corinthians and Revelations, we see stinging associated with judgment. because of her husband's work that they traveled that uh, direction or it could have been because of um, the oppression that Jabin was forcing upon the people <clears throat> we said last week that Judah and Simeon and the southern tribes do not have much of a problem because of Shamgar <clears throat> he continued to keep peace but the northern tribes were having difficulties with the Canaanites. And so it was probably because of the oppression that um, they came south. I doubt that it was, uh, had anything to do with his work because he would have had to give up his land and property uh, up north uh, as part of his tribe. So... Uh, she arrived down here in the middle part of, of Ephraim. The New American Standard Bible says this about verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. But the Hebrew text literally says, Now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidus. Lapidus. The emphasis is on the fact that we have a female judge here. Woman, prophetess, and wife. It's interesting to note that the writer of Judges, we believe, is Samuel. And he described her as prophetess and judge. While later on in she describes herself as a mother in Israel. Interesting, the two different perspectives on the same person. But some people have questioned whether Deborah should be a role model for women today. There's some question as to whether Deborah was usurping the role of a man. Was she failing to trust God to provide um, male leadership in a time of great need? Deborah's role in leading Israel as a judge is an uncommon one. From the time of the patriarchs, men had been leading God's people. After Joshua, the men of Israel turned away from the trusting God and there was no one of Joshua's statue to take up the, the fight equal to what Joshua and Moses had done. While it would be wrong for a woman to step forward 
on her own to assume the role of leadership, it was not wrong for God to choose a woman to lead. This is what made Deborah uncommon. God chose her to lead. There are only 11 women in the Bible specifically called prophetesses. So having a woman in this role is uncommon. However, it is not out of the question. When you think about it, nobody becomes a judge or a prophet by personal choice. Deuteronomy 13 and uh, Deuteronomy 18 make it clear that prophets were chosen by God to speak his word. By assuming this role of prophet, they're putting themselves, putting their life on the line if, if God did not choose them. And if their prophetic sayings turned out to be false, it meant death to the prophet. So it is clear that each of the judges was chosen by God to lead Israel. Our grandson has filled out a few applications for work, and he's had a couple of job interviews. Um, God did not conduct job interviews for the role of being a judge. So we can safely say that Deborah did not become a judge or a prophetess by her own choice. It was something that God called her to do. So by placing Deborah in this prominent position of leadership, God probably had an alter, ulterior motive as well. <clears throat> he was probably trying to stir up the men of Israel to step forward <clears throat> and encourage them to follow after him the way that she did. making an assumption here, but it, it appears from Scripture that the men of Israel at this time, even the good ones like Barak, had grown timid before their enemies. And as I said before, the men of Deborah's day were self-centered, taken up with the gifts from the land of milk and honey that God had provided them. They were consumed with material things of this world and society rather than the word of God. One can't be self-centered and be true to that word. For you can't serve two masters. And like I said, I believe this is evident because the men failed to teach the children the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the provisions of God. Thus, they were suffering oppression of, by Jabin as a result of their sinful choices. So even for Barak, the word of God spoken through Deborah was not enough. He said he would follow God's direction only if Deborah went with him. I think there are many examples and things to learn from Deborah today. 
For instance, men must not shrink back from the challenges of the world, no matter how strong these challenges may appear to be. God calls men to lead, not to cower in the corner someplace. Likewise, women must not assume what they have not been given. I think this is where Deborah's example is important for women today. Deborah did only what she was called by God to do. She was faithful to that calling. The basis for commending Deborah as a role model is established by understanding what the women are called to do today. Women should then pursue that calling in faith, the faith, true faith of God. And this is where I think some people make a leap here. I don't think it's valid to compare the practical task of being a judge with the general pursuit of leadership in the church today. God's word has given specific criteria for leadership in the church and leadership in the family. Those roles of leadership are to be occupied by men. Thus, God is not calling women to take up roles of leadership in the church. But there are specific things that God is calling women to do. Discovering those biblical directives for women is essential, I believe, to understand how Deborah can be an example today. The men of Deborah's time did not show leadership or courage. They followed the legacy of the ten spies that went in to explore the promised land. Those ten spies came back saying how horrible it was with the giants. They feared men more than they feared God. That's the status of the men of that day. I think that's the status of the men today. Deborah's vision was the same vision that Joshua and Caleb had. That is, that nothing could stand in the way of God. Not even iron chariots. Deborah was not caught up in the fear of her day. She took God at his word. So when she was given the message to, to give Barak to attack Sisera, she didn't flinch a bit. She had faith that God would fulfill his promise. Scripture says that Sisera had a huge army, and Deborah called it a multitude, and it was led by 900 chariots of iron. But she delivered that message to Barak with confidence. She said, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Judges 4, 6. I think it's this kind of confidence that is needed today. Like Deborah, women today must look to the God of the Bible as their first love. Women, and just this is a generalization, but women are tempted to 
uh, by the world to dress for the approval of men rather than God. Women are tempted to seek fulfillment as individuals without regard to loving God first. While men must try to follow God in order to be godly leaders, women must not settle for less than a godly man when considering marriage. So before I jump into Barak, any comments or thoughts? We can go all, go all the way back to Genesis and, and Adam's uh, God commanding Adam as kind of a guardianship of the garden and guardianship of his, his wife. You know, it goes all the way back to them. And Adam failed in the same regard as, as the men of, of this day. He did not do what God was commanding him to do. I see a little bit of well, I haven't got there yet, but yeah, so I think that's... that's well, she tells him that the guy mentioned you, and he's... Well, I know that she's been called as a prophetess and a judge, so therefore she goes... She's not almost like a good luck charm to him. He can hide behind that, thinking that God will protect them because she's there. Now, but keep in mind, God, though... Keep in mind that he's listed in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith. So, but I agree with you. So there was faith, but it wasn't a very strong faith. So is Samson. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Christianity has elevated women mm-hmm. uh, 
church, women are to be put down. They're to know their place. Right, right. But God can greatly use women, and they ought to be treasured and valued in the good of God's people. Yeah, half of the prophets listed in Scripture are in the New Testament and under the New Testament church. You know, and, uh, interesting. Move on to verse 6. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out for you Caesarus, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude to the river Kishon, and I will give them into your hand. Again, we see the use of the river here that they may use to attack the army, or at least use the river as a way of pinning the army down. The name Barak means lightning. And Binoam means my father is delightful. And his family was from Kadesh Naphtali. Uh, Kadesh means sanctuary. And Kadesh Naphtali was the city of refuge in Naphtali, and thus a Levitical city. So it's very possible that Barak was a Levite, and probably uh, some sort of a priest. And if that's true, there are some implications that we should consider. First, it means that Barak was one of the appointed guardians of Israel. And Deborah attempted to transfer the leadership role back to him, where it rightly belonged. Deborah did not lose sight of the appropriateness of male leadership. Barak's refusal to assume this role leads to a judgment against him. And as we shall see in the future, uh, the failure of the Levites to act in a priestly and guardian way uh, over Israel becomes a major theme in Judges chapter 17 through 21. So Barak is an example of what was later to happen in the book. The failure of the Levites be guardians over the people. Verse 8. Then Barak said to her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. In the first part of verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will 
sells Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now remember our, our template that we started this with. <clears throat> God's command or promise, people's response, either obey or disobey, and God's judgment on their action, either blessings or judgment. So Barak had the word of God, the word of promise. So after years under uh, Deborah's uh, teachings as a prophetess, he should have known to trust it. Now Barak might have said something like this, I'm rather nervous about going out there alone. Would you come with me? I have the promise, but I should like the presence of the Spirit with me as well. And since the Spirit is with you, Deborah, would you consider going with me? Now this would have been a reasonable request. God never gives his people a command without also giving his presence to help fulfill that command. But that's not what Barak said. He said, if you will not go with me, I will not go. I believe this may not have been a, this is not a statement of faith. This is not a request, but it is an attempt to put conditions on God. What he's saying in today's terms is, it's hard to walk by faith, so I demand a little bit of sight as well. Barak was not a coward, as verse 14 shows. He led the army into battle. Rather, he had faith, but <clears throat> that faith was very weak. Since Barak had sinned, you might suppose that uh, we would expect a strong rebuke. We might expect to see him walking around in burlap and, and ashes. But note, however, that the Lord's rebuke, delivered through his prophetess Deborah, is a mild one. The punishment fits the crime. But this one lapse of faith is not turned into an occasion for maximum punishment. In this we see the gentleness and the mercy of the Lord in dealing with our frailties. Thus a good example of how we should treat each other as God showed mercy to us. The honor would go to a woman. This prophecy is fulfilled in Judges 5-6 in Deborah's song when it says, In the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. It might have read in the days of Barak, but Barak forfeited the right to dishonor. The days <coughs> were not the days of Barak, but the days of Jael. And this is a clear humiliation for him. It is the man who should lead and the woman who should come alongside him as a helper. It was not, humili it was not humiliating for Barak as a child in Israel to submit to the guardianship of Deborah. Now, however, Barak has grown up. Like Adam in the garden, he's supposed to take on that role of guardianship. And he refused. 
Though his faith is real, it is also weak. And so Barak receives the humiliation of having a woman do his job. So, you see what's happening here. Up here to the north, we have Hazor. And down here, we have uh, Deborah under the palm trees, and this is where Sisera is at. <laughs> and eventually, um, they all clash and come together. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his feet. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had separated himself from the Canaanites from the son of Hoad, the brother-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tents as far away as the oak in Zanaanim, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinamim, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people were with him from Haraseth, Hagalim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this day in, in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heraseth Hergon, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not one was left. Let me just kind of close here, I think, give perspective on this battle. Um, I've quoted Pastor Hokema in lessons in the past, so let me finish with, by quoting here. Quote, in spite of all the odds that were against him, he nevertheless did not refuse to obey the word of God, but went to Mount Tabor to deliver Israel. From a mere human point of view, it must be noted that uh, to gather Israel on Tabor at the time over against the enemy was sheer folly. In the first place, let us notice that he was to gather 10,000 men of Israel behind him. 10,000 men surely is not a very large army. 
Besides, we may assume that there are men uh, were poorly prepared from a military point of view. If we were to take in account the words of Deborah that told us that there was no spear or shield seen among the 40,000 of Israel, we may surmise that Sisera had taken care to deprive Israel of almost every means of defense or attack. The men behind Barak were not used to the battle, but were accustomed to, the, uh, to endure oppression. And they had been afraid to show themselves on the highways for fear of the enemy. With these 10,000 men, he was to go to Mount Tabor. And Tabor was an isolated, pointed-shaped mountain at the northern corner of the plain, rising to a height of about 2,000 feet. It had been pointed out that Mount Tabor makes a strong position for defense against the enemy in the valley. And this is undoubtedly true, but it must be remembered that in this connection uh, is that Barak with his 10,000 men going to the top of Tabor, everything is put on the line, everything's at stake. From Mount Tabor, there's no escape. Once on the mountain, Barak and his men had no choice. They had to meet the enemy. They had to fight and gain the victory or die. On the other hand, there was the enemy. They were undoubtedly strong in number, for Deborah spoke of them as a multitude. Secondly, the men of Sisera were veterans in, in battle and used to victory. Finally, they were well armed and equipped with 900 chariots of iron. The two forces were, could, uh, had no comparison. From a mere human point of view, it was impossible to expect Barak would gain the victory. How he would defeat the enemy was a thing not to be seen. There was not one power that could sustain Barak, but one standing which he could uh, proceed to Tabor. It was the strength of faith in the name of the word of Jehovah. Jehovah had spoken, and Jehovah would win the battle. End of quote. So that kind of didn't, puts that in perspective. Didn't have a very well prepared army, and so he relied on the word of God to fill his promise. Any thoughts as we close? Take up the sleep of JL's victory next next time we get together here. So let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Uh, we see their handiwork throughout scripture, how you raise up leaders, how you protect uh, your people, how you give strength to those who are weak. And Lord, we pray for the same thing among us. We pray that you would raise up leaders within this church, that, Lord, you would provide our strength through your spirit. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done in this place. Be with us in the next service, we pray, as we open up your word. Give the pastor uh, and those uh, providing the service uh, strength and encouragement. We ask you, Lord, to abide with us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.